I had no idea what this interview was going to be about. Good. But Those are the looking, best ones. If you're looking for the basic yeah. black person in Cleveland, you don't need to interview me because I'm not basic. <laughs> and, that, I don't fit in, and I don't fit into all the categories. Sitting in the mayor's office in downtown Cleveland with Nathan Westfield and his daughter, Yolanda Edwards. I guess to start, I'll just say that Nathan's a tall man. He has a big presence, and he's wearing a marine hat, his daughter smiling happily. And the very first things Nathan says to me are, you've never met a black man like me before. Which, I, which categories did you think I was going to put you in? Well, I'm, I want, that's why I want to make sure you can't fit me in with a group I, I or didn't come, a system. I'll t- I'm going to just be honest with you. When you say I can't put you in the categories, right. I don't even know what category yeah, I am in. Put you that's in. what I'm saying. I'm in a lot of categories. Yeah, so I don't I don't okay. have any preconceived notions okay, about Okay, then that's good. I've then never met you. I, I don't know what you Well, when you brought up the first 100 black men, then that— What about—tell me, about, me about the 100 black men. I think it's a good organization. Yeah. Uh, and you were were you ever involved with it? I was involved in the beginning. Like when would that have been? Uh, when we first uh, brought it into Cleveland. Yeah. And uh, I know this sounds weird, but how many were there? I don't know. Me and Avery and it's several of us, you know. Sure. But uh, we. Me and what Avery, I mean is, I, and I, and I mean this sincerely, you don't need a hundred black men to start a hundred black men. Oh chapter, no, it wouldn't right? necessarily make guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so you were part of it in the early in the days. beginning. Yeah. What were you, what did you think your goals were? What did you think they were going to be then? Well, I knew what the goals were, but yeah. the goals didn't really deal with me because my thought pattern was somewhat different than okay. the, the How? black man goals. Like in what way? I don't believe in singing out young black males and putting them on stage. Okay. Because when they leave the stage, they're going to go back with their white friends, their maximum friends every day. Mm-hmm. They're going to go back home to the problems or whatever. Okay. I believe... Uh, uh, when you deal with these kids, you're going to have to deal with them on a multi-scale uh-huh. because that's the society. Uh-huh. And when you put them on a paddle school, which I think is a good program, yep. it's just that you're telling them that they're different and they're really not. Like different because they're black? Yes, that's what you're telling them. And really they're not if they go ahead and do what they're supposed to do. Okay, so you so essentially... Like, I just want to make sure that I kind of understand. So you're saying it's a good enough organization. It's, it's a very fine. good organization. But that— But it, it didn't it, fit what I wanted to do. So I started my yeah. own program. So tell me about it. What I was started your program? track and field. Hey, you track and field. Here's the thing I noticed really quickly was that Nathan Westfield marches to the beat of his own drum. And that sometimes you have all the questions you plan to ask and all the plans that you hope go one way. And the person you're interviewing goes in a completely different way. And that's exactly what this interview did. Okay. Which it was a developing program. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a program for running track and field. Okay. It was a developing program. This right. is where we took kids, mm-hmm. and each day we raised a bar to get them to do better each day. Right. But we used track. And in track and field, you can take uh, 
every child that's in the community, mm-hmm. rich, black, poor, right, fat, skinny, mm-hmm. and they can be a part. Were you a runner? Were you a track oh, and yes, field I was, guy? I was a running Marine Corps. Gotcha. And uh, and uh, this way, uh, we uh, developed the program. Matter of fact, one of the judges in town was a lawyer for a program, Judge Puckett. He okay. was a lawyer for a program. Sure. We used to take two, three hundred kids across the country mm-hmm. to track meets. Right. So, and we begged for money and borrowed money and got mm-hmm. them where to go. And we got a lot of kids' scholarships, mm-hmm. and uh, we got a lot of stories on that sure. program. And that's the way I looked at it, and, that, and that's the way I went away from the black man because I wanted to uh, deal with all kids. And, and I raised all of my kids through the program and raised a lot of other kids, and we got a lot of successful mm-hmm. kids out here in the community because of that. I could really tell that Yolanda was so proud of Nathan. The way that she looked at him, the way that she smiled as he talked, she was so proud of her dad's accomplishments. To go from being the son of a farmer out in the county to a really respected man in the community in the city. So what are your what are your earliest memories of Cleveland? Well, did you grow up here? Were you born here? I grew up in Polk County. My earliest memories was Polk County, well, Chestui. And... uh, you you got to you got to kind of understand my family. My daddy, you got to understand my family. My, well, I was close knit family. Mm-hmm. My daddy was born in eighteen and eighty nine. Okay. My mother was born in nineteen and sixteen. Mm-hmm. But my daddy's first wife died, and then he married my mother. He's about thirty years older than she were. Mm-hmm. But he was a. When you dealt with him, you dealt with an intelligent man. Sure. He. Uh, he could put three gardens in one patch of land in one year. He shoot everybody horses. Uh-huh. He delivered everybody cays. Uh-huh. He was a blacksmith. He was a veterinarian. He was he was all these things. Uh-huh. And uh, and my mother was a very intelligent lady. She read the Progressive Farmer. She kept him informed on the native seeds that's coming out, so he would uh-huh. advance in growing the right things. Was he a farmer for himself, uh, for himself, we, or was we, he a farmer for others? He, he was a farmer. First, we ran Larry's farm, then we had our own farm in Polk County. Okay, but he ran Larry's farm about nine hundred acres. He was the head man, mm-hmm. and you got to understand, uh, uh, he didn't take back seat to nobody. Mm-hmm. In his house was his roost. Mm-hmm. He had seven sons and two daughters in his household. Mm-hmm. His roost went. You didn't smoke in his house. You didn't use profanity in his house. I didn't care who you were, what you looked like, uh, what. Mm-hmm. That was his house roofs. And my family believed in education. And he already told us, he said, I'll never be able to probably pay for y'all to get a form of education, but you know how to work. Mm-hmm. And I got my bachelor's degree, almost master's. I had another brother that was accepted to... Uh, uh, didn't get West Point, but he got accepted to the University of Nebraska, the Naval program, uh-huh. which he was finished out there as a. Then I had Luther, my, the police officer here. He was college graduate. I had a sister college graduate. Uh-huh. And uh, how many brothers and sisters do you have I total? Had six brothers and two sisters. And I got a half brother and half sister. Okay. And uh, 
my sister in Chattanooga, she was a school teacher. She's 82 now. She's a school, she's a retired school teacher. Now, my younger sister was a cook here in town. Uh-huh. So uh, all my brothers, we had nothing to do here. So when we got out of school, we were military. Okay. I was the only Marine. The rest of them was Army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Navy and all that stuff. Sure. But uh, in, in, in the process... Uh, where I worked at Magic Shelf when I came out of Marine Corps, I went and got my degree, bachelor degree. I got Cleveland State, then I got my bachelor degree out of UT. What were your degree? What was your degree? Industrial in? Management Psychology. Okay. Uh, I used to be pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still in there somewhere. It right? was a it was a requirement for my kids to go to college. Okay. How many kids did you have? I had five. Yeah, fine. We got one here. We got one here. All my children is college graduates. Mm-hmm. Three of them got their masters. Yeah. I had two West Pointers, one Air Force, and uh, she's a uh, she got her masters. My son got the got the bachelor out of West Point and the masters out of Columbia in New York. Uh-huh. Were you in Polk County when you entered the military, and then you no, came back to Cleveland? Cleveland. You moved to Cleveland. I came to Cleveland at sixteen years old. You came to Cleveland 16 on your own or as a family? No, the family. The foreman went away and uh, foreman and my daddy was up in age. Yeah. So he bought a home in Cleveland. We moved to Cleveland. And and so did you spend any time in Cleveland public school? Would you have been still in high school at that point or not yet? I went to College Hill when we came from Polk County. I went to school in Polk County in my younger years. And when I went to College Hill, then on my senior year, Mm -hmm. 1964, me and a group of kids in the community said, we're not going back to college here. Okay. We went to Bradley. You just decided? We decided. That's a thing Bradley. you could had do? Nothing, had nothing to do with no organization. <laughs> had nothing to do with nothing. So you, no one said, hey. No. No one told you you're no. going to leave this school no. and go to that school. No. You just no. decided on your own. That's, that's what I'm telling you. You're no, listen. Hey, the, I want this conversation. <laughs> I'm saying, so tell me, how does a 16-year-old black kid roll up into a bunch of older white men's business and say, I'm going to go to school here. Well, you got to understand this. I, I do. I want to understand I, it. I grew, my, I grew up in a community yeah. where there was no black. Right. No, I, I get that. I, I have I have definitely interviewed people in the surrounding counties that talk about there wasn't any version of that until they kind of got into the systems. That's why, that the, so that's the reason I ask is there does seem to be at least two Two or three places, right? Where if we were gonna if we we're gonna use the word uh, systematic racism, right? Not just a person who's treating you, not not a person who's saying you're black and so I look at you this way, but a, a system in which it's it's segregated, right? right? So everybody that I've talked to has said when I grew up in the county, there was no white or black. Everybody played together. Everybody did this. Yeah. But when I was in church. It was a black church or a white church. When I was at school, it was a black school or a white school, at least until College Hill burned down the next time. And then they uh, moved the kids or, you know, at the job, at the job site. So my interest, right, and I'm not, my interest is how does a kid and his friends, right, go to a place where, normally a kid would have to get permission to go anyway, right? You'd be zoned for a certain place or, and I, I understand the mentality. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand the process. Well, Did you just walk up one day and say, here is, I am? What'd you do? This is, this is the people that makes the difference. Yeah. That, uh, you had to, you had to grow up under my father. 
He had no fear. For Sounds like a, I hear that. I'm, I'm going to ask her a bunch of questions about he, growing up under you in a minute. <laughs> he had no fear. Sure. All the kids, half the kids that went to Bradley, I played with them in the country. We sure, age. sure, yeah. So when I went to Bradley, it was just like a visitation. Mm-hmm. I knew all a bunch of kids. Right. Plus the assistant principal there, Miss mm-hmm. Clemmer. Which uh, Mr. Schutz would remember. He's dead too now. But uh, Mr. Schutz was a principal at the time. Okay. She used to be over the school system in Polk County. Okay. So she already knew my family. When I skipped school one day and she called me in there and asked me where was my excuse, I said, Well, I don't have one. She said, I'm going to call your mom. I said, You don't know my mom? She said, Yes, I do. Then she explained to me who she was. Sure. So when she explained who she was, she already knew who I was. Okay. And a lot of people knew my family already. So this part of the interview really surprised me. Um, in every other interview, when we talked about segregation and integration, um, there was this overwhelming sense that you just went where the system told you to go. And Nathan sort of defies that stereotype. I mean, here you have a kid who went to school at College Hill and then just decided he was going to go to Bradley across town, an all-white school? I mean, how does somebody do that? How do you just decide you're going to go? And then when I ask how he got there, he says, I walked. I mean, he's the kind of guy who just walked where he wanted and did the thing that he wanted, and he wasn't going to let the system tell him any different. So you knew you had friends already. Had friends because already. there. So because out in the county... There wasn't this uh, divide. You had friends. They were already going to Bradley. Yeah, yeah. The teachers there already knew you because you played with yeah, these kids. Yeah. So tell me about your first day, Bradley. You decide you're not going to go. Well, you're not going to go to College I'm Hill gonna anymore. I'm going to tell you a story about Bradley. And probably, I, I tell it now, and I tell it to a lot of people. Yeah. And when I went there, they put me into a college prep English class. Okay. And Miss, me and Miss Frischdale. Mm-hmm. Me and Miss Frischdale were friends throughout the year. I mean, throughout her life. And I sat in class one day, and she said, the first day of class, she said, I want a thesis. I want you to read a book. I want the thesis tomorrow. And I'm sitting there, what in the world is a thesis? And I never read a book in my life. Okay. And I made up my mind at that second if I ever have a child, they would never be in this position to be this ignorant. Sure. And that is when I decided that I wouldn't use no excuses. Yeah. And I would make changes and make sure my children, mm-hmm. that they would not be ignorant sure. to these things. Yeah. And in the process, a lot of other kids benefit that me making sure my kids didn't grow up ignorant. Sure. And it wasn't nobody's fault that I grew up ignorant. That was a system. I never blamed anybody for it. Yeah. Did you feel, let me ask you, when you moved here, when you moved to this part of town, did you feel any sort of white-black division? I'm not saying did you let it affect you. Obviously, that's not your style. (laughs) What I'm saying is, 
did you feel like, for instance, you had to go to the black church or, or, or that the church was the black church or that the school was the white school? So when you went to Bradley, how I'm, many black I'm kids were there? This. I'm going to read it. Read it. I'm for it. Hey, listen, side note is that right now he's when pulling up the old newspaper. When I expressed concern about going to Bradley High School, my daddy told me something I'd never forgotten. Westfield, he said, they had said, let yourself live. People will let you live. Respect and accept yourself as others will accept you. Sure. That's what my daddy told me when I went to Bradley. Yeah. So so how many black kids at Bradley when you walk in the door? Two? Three? About seven of us. Seven. It's about seven of us. And you were all College Hill kids, and you said we're not going back. We all was in the same community. Okay. Two blocks away from, about five blocks away from Bradley. So, so what that what what that's saying? That's the way we grew up, right? Nathan's been many things here in Cleveland. He was one of the founders of a hundred black men. He was a mentor, a teacher, an athlete, and a coach. Yolanda, yes. this is like a force of nature, yes. right? Sitting next to you, obviously you're proud, right? You're proud of everything that he's saying. What was it like? Where did you go to school? I did kindergarten at College Hill. It was a kindergarten class. That's where most of the black kids my age went. Mm -hmm. And then from first to fourth grade, went to Arnold Elementary. Mm -hmm. Then in 1979, 1979, 1980, went to Prospect Elementary as my brother, sister, and I, the first blacks, to enter that school. So this is like a family thing now. <laughs> it is. Being the first black kid in the school is like your family. This is your thing. <laughs> yeah. But tell me what the mentality was, though, internally. Did you feel any black-white tension in general? And I don't want you—let me say, I'm not I'm not fishing. I am at no, this point— ahead, right? So, ahead, so, ahead, so ahead, I, I want to give ahead. you guys some insight into me, right? Yeah. You're not my first interview. Mm. I have been interviewing people asking these same questions over and over and over again, right? So this being such a different version, I'm interested in what you felt, not just about the school you went to, but the the community that you were in at the time, what it felt like to be in College Hill. So if you were in College Hill in kindergarten, mm-hmm. what is the time frame to the fires? To the so uh, well, College Hill had been rebuilt. It had it been burned and then rebuilt and then burned so, again, right? And then rebuilt. Um, I'm not sure. When I went in, it's. What is Northeast Recreation Center now? Yeah. Used to be the kindergarten. Right, okay. And I had Miss Harvale and Miss Hudson. They were my teachers. Mm-hmm. And there were several of uh, black students in the classroom, but there were, um, as an equal number, amount of whites there. So you really didn't. So you weren't you weren't really in just an all black classroom. You were, and you were, and decided no, you're going to go where you want to go. So I I, I get that. I kind of get that. What was the? So you lived even where you lived was down over by Bradley, kind of over by Bradley. That's where I grew up when I was at home. Okay. When I came out of Rinko, I bought a house on A Street. And that's where she went to school. I lived on 8th Hill. Street. Then, after a while, I was in real estate. I was a real estate broker, too. I remodeled old houses. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of things. Are you enjoying listening to College Hill? We sure hope so. And if you are, we'd love you to know that this was made possible through the generous donations of the United Way of the Okoye Region. 
The United Way does so many things in the community. From helping people with poverty to education, the United Way is focused on every community that they're in, and that is especially true of the United Way of the Ikoi region. Once again, here's College Hill. But tell me about Cleveland of your youth. What are kind of like your earliest memories of growing up in Cleveland? Well, I do remember a lot of growing up on 8th Street, on the corner of 8th and Poplar. Um, there was a group of friends. Um, we just all knew each other. I didn't necessarily hang out with them. It wasn't, we were always mm-hmm. together, but we were like our community. We didn't know anything different. We didn't know we were poor. <clears throat> we didn't know we lacked anything. We were just there, and it mm-hmm. was, we had white neighbors on mm-hmm. one side. Yep. And we were here and down the road. We had a whole community of other friends that we all went to school with. So we didn't know really anything different because we just all grew up together. Um, If somebody got in trouble, we laughed together. We played together. We cried together. We knew everything. So Mm -hmm. growing up, it was just a community. And even if you look now, 30 years later after high school, you still see those same people in that community, and it's just like growing up. You know who they are, you know who their family is, you know, and you just somehow just naturally congregate when you're mm-hmm. together, just like when we were younger. Yeah, I try to I try to get things, I, I try to express some really complicated feelings I have as we work our way through this. So the, the, the most interesting thing about this interview so far to me would reside in like the, I guess we would put in the category of mentality, Mm-hmm. Right. This idea that um, your father had a father who was like, this is my territory. I'm the man. I'm going to handle my stuff. You're not going to cuss here. You're not going to smoke here. These are the rules. I'm going to handle this farm. And that sort of passes on to him saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the school I want to go to, not the school that you're going to tell me to go to. Uh, and and in particular, this moment where he felt unprepared, saying my kids will never be unprepared. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, uh, tell me a little bit about when I when I take that, right? We're in Polk County and it's almost like racism doesn't even exist. We're out in the county. We're not in any racist systems mm-hmm. at that point. So we're everything is mixed together and the kids are playing, right? We moved to Cleveland, right? And almost like the first thing he does is just be like, no, I play with who I want. I do it, mm-hmm. right? Then you guys, interestingly enough, so I I, grew, I didn't grow up. I, I've owned a home on 8th, 8th and mm-hmm. Oak. So I know where 8th and Poplar is. And I can actually picture exactly the two neighborhoods come together right there. One of the things we've talked about is how so often bright, Black talent coming up through our school system feels like they don't have a place in Cleveland, so they leave to get a college education and they do not re- they do not return. So there is a, 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 a what we would consider, I guess, in media, negative feedback loop, right? So like we raise you up, we don't say you have a place here culturally, we don't say it as a town, and then they leave. But here you are. Right. So you're product of the school system. Where'd you go to college? I went to Austin P. State University. Yes. And I went to Lee. Okay. And why'd you come back? So why are you here now? Well, I came back after my husband passed away. I came. I chose to come back here, amazingly, because I had little children. 
I needed a sound school system. Mm-hmm. And I needed the education because I'm a proponent of education, too. Sure, right. And I knew the community. I knew the people. I knew the problems. Right. And I knew how to deal with them. One of the things that we've talked so much about on this podcast so far is this cycle where kids grow up in Cleveland and then leave to go to college and never feel like they can come back to get a job. And I found what Yolanda was saying was so compelling. You know, she's here because she was from here originally. She knew that there was a gap in the circle, so to speak. And she really wanted to be here, part of the community, part of the people, and fix that uh, that broken circle. When, when they sure. present. So I had So what do you think the history. problems are? Well, like my dad said, um, or like you said, you raise them up. There's no place here for them. Mm-hmm. You move them out. So you right. come in, and it's understood, well, this is not your place. You got to launch out of here you if you want to do something, right? You want to do something if you want to be something yeah. because there is no spot here right. for you. Even, you know, yeah. and that's the way we It fail. really weighs on my mind. I don't I can't help but look at Olympia like for those of you listen to this by by the time you get to this episode you'll know Olympia and uh, like my mind hangs here, right? Like we've had so many conversations about this because <sighs> If there's like only one thing that old white dudes know how to do, it's like how to tell a younger white guy, don't worry, your place is here. <laughs> it's like if we could only pick like one skill that white guys are good at. It's like they could look at a younger white guy and go, don't worry, you'll have a job. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like when we talk about this, this is something Olympia helped me really rethink diversity training. It wasn't just wasn't just Olympia, but it was actually Olympia and the vice mayor. Right. Mm-hmm. When he was taught and Helen Miller. This conversation came up three times in a row that was like, what really is diversity training, right? It's not Mm -hmm. saying to a business, uh, you should hire black people. That doesn't make any sense. We already know that. It's like you already know, like in many cases, depending on the kind of business you are, you're required to hire X amount of black people and Hispanic people, white people. Like like you said earlier, you're like, no law will fix it. You said that straight. Well, I know no law will fix it. Right. That's what you said. It is the it is a community here. I don't know how many people in communities all across the country will hear this podcast. Hopefully a lot. Right. And it's like we have to break out of our mindset of diversity training being like a set of rules that you have checked off. And they have to diversity training needs to become when city leaders uh, get together with business leaders and say this cycle doesn't end. I'm fascinated by you coming back and saying the words to me, I knew the problems Mm -hmm. and I chose to come back because I feel like I can address them. Right. So tell me how we address it. Well, um, like you said, we stop looking at color and stop trying to meet a quota and we start picking the qualified because we let a lot go because of that one issue, and they could be far more qualified, far more insightful. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a black person that's far more. It's anybody that comes into our town. We know this person's a hard worker, but because this person is not who we know 
in our generational mm-hmm. link, in our lineage, yeah. then they're not qualified. I don't play golf with his dad, yeah. so they he must not be clickish, qualified. Clickish, clickish. Clickish. Yeah. They call it clickish and clannish. Sure. I mean, there's definitely like a, a specific cultural line that sets you up to this for this mentality, right? To be able to view it a certain way. And then even to, I mean, everybody's going to hear this podcast, so it's not like comparisons from one interview to the next aren't going to be made by every listener, right? But, but for instance, the last people that I interviewed, right, were like, the, the greatest thing was before we mixed it all together. Right. So so that's what I'm saying. I've had interviews here with black people who grew up right here who were like the worst thing that happened was like everything was awesome before we had to integrate. They loved their community. Right. They loved their community. And so there's like so many parts of 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 love of community. And, and I love your perspective and I loved their perspective. I think that that at the end of the day. Right. So this this podcast isn't just about. The history of a place. But look right. what happened to the community. The old people die out and the kids don't know how to pay taxes to keep the house. So we lose the community anyway. And we talked about that a little bit. We said, like, when you look out this window, My, what do you see? They said, I don't I don't see the thing that I loved. I've seen white treated worse by whites than I've seen white treat blacks. Sure. <laughs> I've seen... Big wheels. Now, I was over security, and so I had to march people out. Yeah. I seen these big wives sell these guys, superintendents in those apartments, said, Nathan, go down there and bring them out. And bring them up here and go walk them back down and let them get the keys and take them out. Uh-huh. They was very vicious. Uh-huh. They, I don't think none of them ever fought a black person like that. But, but sure. look here, look here. So uh, I've seen more cruelty white on white than I've seen white on black. Tell you the fact. Sure. Now. Well, there's going to be a lot of people, white and black, that don't like that you say that. Well, it's true. No, I know they, it is. I'm not saying it. you're worried about it. Look, you've gotten this far in life not worrying about it. Uh, a lot of times people get to thinking that white nationalists, these slickheads, is mean people. You've never been around no mean black people. Believe me, I've been around some mean black people. Hey, you don't want to be around them. Sure, because you know why? It stinks to be around anyone who's mean. Yeah, yeah, but that's what right. I'm saying. Uh, a lot of people get to thinking that only this, only these, uh, what, what's these skinheads, whatever they call, is only bad people. No, I, I, you know, there's some bad people out there. Sure. So, uh, so uh, I guess I don't know. I don't. We get off on something else that we, you don't want to talk about. I want to just talk about but, all. Uh, of it. I'm fine but, with uh, any of but, it. But uh, my whole goal was. Uh, Maybe people can hear my raising my children by me helping other children probably done more for my children raising than anything else. When they had, my kids always had because I always worked, my wife always worked, we always gave them. And by them dealing with a lot of other kids in the community, they seen other kids didn't have. And that, and they had to work with these kids, and that made them better. Did you feel like that's how it was? I did. I did. I understood. I remember um, we had a garden growing up, and I remember neighborhood kids would run through the cornfields. But then also we would go out in the day and pick the cabbage and the corn and the beans and the tomatoes, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we would take them to our neighbors. 
And we would say, this come out of the garden, this is what you eat. And one neighbor actually crocheted us a doll as a thank you in return. So there was that understanding that this is ours. So that's what the community was. There was no lack. So we didn't know poor. We didn't, I didn't even know the word poverty because we had resources, shared resources, sure. and that's what we You were given to others actively. Yeah. All you saw was that you had enough to actually give to someone we, else. We right? always had more than enough to share. So there was always that giving is mm. understood. There was, there's no excuse not to give. There's no excuse not to share, to pour into, to glean from, to learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no excuse not to have community. Do you have so. children? You have kids. You do. I do. You I said. have two children. So what do you tell them? The what do you tell thing. them right now? Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. The world is yours. I tell mine, you know what? Life is bigger than Cleveland, Tennessee. You got to go. And I tell them, you have to go away to go to college. Uh You can't be close enough that you can get home because you need to experience something outside of here. Sure. And and a lot of times talking to my daughter, she doesn't get that because her whole world is Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been places, but it's been so protected because it's different now than when I was growing up. And I'm like, you know what, when you get out there, you're going to have to learn to solve these problems, and you can't solve it from just your perspective. And I was telling her a story um, that I heard a couple of years ago about the turtle and the giraffe. They're both in the jungle. Mm-hmm. They both have the same thing, but they're looking at it from different perspectives. And as long as the turtle see the foliage down here, he'll never see the fruit <coughs> on the tree. Sure. And I'm like, you've got to go. You've got to get different perspective. So when you want to go higher... You can't take advice from the turtle because he doesn't Mm -hmm. see what's up there. You've got to go to somebody that has that. Mm -hmm. You know, and no is never an option. If somebody tells you no, go to the next person till you get your yes. And that's the way we train. That's what we do. That's how she's raised. Sure. Yes, she will be an Air Force Academy. I'm positive that is true. I hear you. I'm sure if you matter say fact, it, then fact, it will be. Matter of fact, in my family, we had over a million something dollars in scholarships. My sons were not allowed to take an athletic scholarship. They were top five percent of students in the country. Uh, they, they would, they. My daughter could take an athletic scholarship, <laughs> but the sons, the sons were not allowed to take athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. They could play sports when they got to college, mm-hmm. but not. They go on They had to get. They had to get a scholarship on their minds instead. Went to the academies. Sure. But uh, they could have played Alabama, Tennessee, anywhere. No athletic scholarships because they are used. They're used on a slave system, and uh, I couldn't allow that to take place. It was really interesting to see that Nathan ran his family by a certain code. He was absolutely convinced that he was never going to put his children in a situation where they didn't know what to say or didn't know how to write, didn't know how to be successful. So from the very beginning, that's what he did. And you see that with all the children attending very high-level universities. And I guess one of the things that really struck me was when he said that his sons were not allowed to have athletic scholarships, um, that they had to turn those scholarships down 
because he wanted them to get into school on the merits of their minds. Uh, what kids got to do now, they got to, uh, some of them got to make decisions early in life because they don't have the family system there to uh -huh. let them make good decisions. And some of these young kids can make good decisions if they want to. And like, like over at our school, I, I mentor two young males now over there. And very intelligent one boy. Oh, he's he's brilliant. And but he was going in the wrong direction because he 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 resisted whites. He resisted everything at at nine years old. But we got him on the right track. So it's going to take somebody in this community to catch these, especially young black males. Because so much stuff is on the internet and things, and I see them walk around with their pants down. I think all of them are going to have hip problems trying to hold their pants up. And and uh, somebody will have to work pay the medical bill. But something got to change there. Something in the community got to change there. And not only black males now, I see a lot of white males walking with their pants down. Sure, yeah. And, 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 and every time I catch hold of one of them, I explain to him what that mentality is. They don't understand that that's, that's why those prisoners mm -hmm. take those boys and make girls out of them, and they walk around with their pants down, holding their pants up. They don't understand what, what that represents. And I think there's a whole lot of ignorance that the community is going to have to get across to these young people. Like you're smoking this stuff right here. Yeah, Somehow or another, somebody's going to have to get involved. And I'm an old man now, now, but I did walk back on her, the school recommendation to work with these two young men over at school. And uh, somebody is going to have to get involved. I think that one of the things that is really difficult to talk about in race relations in America, certainly in this town, is that we have such different cultures between white and black. Not better cultures, just different. And that's really what Nathan is getting at when he says we need more black men to step up and mentor young black men. It's not because we're seeing anyone as inherently better than anyone else. It's that when you've been inside a certain culture, you know how to speak to it. You know how to interact with it. And I can't disagree. Even though this interview didn't go the way I was expecting, it went so many great places and I felt like the conversation was so rich. And I think that's something we all could learn to do a bit more. Have conversations with people that are in different cultures than you are. Don't be afraid to talk about race. Don't be afraid to talk about racial problems in America. Nathan wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. And we were able to have such a great conversation about it. But that's all for this one. Next week, we're going to the Dotson and Sons Funeral Home to speak to Miss Alma Dotson. And I've been told she has a lot on her mind. <laughs>